If you have your Bibles, please uh, open it to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, make sure you bring it next time. But for now, we have it up in the screen. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. The infallible Word of God with absolute authority reads as follows. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that tells us that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. That is, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to die for us. Thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, you rescued us from the wrath to come. We ask, Lord, that you make us see that love, that the love you have for us by the power of your Holy Spirit will compel us to love you and to love one another. May you grant us this today, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Initially, I was going to preach on four verses, and then I went down to two verses, and now we're down to just one. So please forgive me for that, but I think there's quite a bit to be said in this one verse, which is verse 9. I've titled today's sermon, Christian Love in Practice. Okay, The love of the Christian is one to be practiced, is one to be seen and witnessed. What is going to be the standard that we use? What is the main idea that we look to as we think about how to practice Christian love. I have a quote, I don't have it in the notes, but I have a quote here from the late J.C. Ryle. He said, quote, A man who is born again does not use the world's opinions as his standard of right and wrong. Unquote. As we talk about truth, as we talk about what love actually is, we do not look to the standards of the world. We look to what God has decreed and told us and taught us through his word, through his actions. And that's how we define love. That is not a subjective definition. It is an objective and truthful definition. More about that in a second. Last time we covered some practical applications and ways in which the Christian church should serve. Serving the church means looking to the needs of the people of God and applying the talents, the gifts that God has given us, the resources that God has blessed us with. I am joyous, I am happy to report that since then, that is during this past week, I witnessed at least three instances in which our brothers and sisters from this church offered to serve their fellow brother or sister. That is how it should be. That is what brings joy to me as a shepherd. So praise God for that. As I witness that and as I see that, since it's basically what this chapter is talking about, it shows a couple of things. First, it shows the willingness and the generosity from the brethren to offer up their talents, their services, their companionship. Well, on the other hand, it also shows humility 
from the receiving end, the person being served. That is, the person that is being served admits, I need help. There's something that I could be served and helped with. I cannot do everything myself. Now, that's important because the ultimate cry of every human being should be and ultimately is a cry of desperation that says, I cannot do this life alone. I not only need help, I need a savior. And that is the ultimate way in which we are served by Christ, by trusting in him. So with that, from talking about the gifts that God has given the church, how those gifts are used to serve the church, it should be an exhortation to everyone here to evaluate, am I using those gifts? Am I not? And if you're not, you should be convicted because you should be serving. That notion comes from the fact that Paul says, you have been given a renewed mind. You have been given grace. Therefore, serve the church. And hence, we begin chapter 12, applying all the theology that has been taught. Today, we begin the second subsection, or perhaps the third subsection in the book of Romans chapter 12, in which, starting in verse 9, the verse we're looking at today, all the way through the rest of the chapter, is a section that has often been referred to as the true marks of a Christian. Characteristics that will show in the life of a Christian. And incidentally, the section begins with speaking of how a Christian person, a Christian person should show their love. When we talk about this Christian love, it cannot be theoretical. If you have a profession of faith in Christ, and your faith is indeed genuine, the fruit of your life will show that you are one who loves others. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. The first one right there is love. If you have a profession of faith, your character, your everyday life must, must show that you are someone who loves. This will be apparent in your conduct, in your words, in your actions, and in your overall character. This is why Christian love is not a platitude. It is not theoretical. Rather, it is intentional and very specific. We do this now because love has been given to us. It is a response. It is not a go-do so that then we can gain something. No, it is a response in obedience. Because God has shown his love to us. The love that God has shown to us is not abstract. It is not vague, but it is very specific. Let us take a look at what Romans 5, 8 says. Just a few, a few chapters before what it says. This is what Paul says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't get more intentional. It doesn't get more specific than that. It reminds us or should remind us also of the verse in John chapter 15. I don't have it in the notes. But it basically says that no greater love has anyone than this. What is it? That one will lay down his life for his friends. Okay. 
So the love that God has shown us in Christ is very specific. It is not theoretical. It is not a platitude. Out of obedience, out of a response to that type of love that God has given us, is that we operate from in order to show love. That is because God's love being shown to us so in a so profound way came to us when we least deserved it. In our worst day, we were saved. Then, those who trust in Christ are recipients of this love. My brothers and sisters, if we are them, those people, it is the example of the love that we should express to the world. And specifically, starting by expressing it within the church to our brothers and sisters. So, coming from the verses that talk about serving each other, utilizing gifts, why should we show love by acts of kindness to the church? Why should we show love to one another as brethren? Husbands, why should you love your wives? Wives, why should you love your husbands and respect them? Parents, why should you love your children? The ultimate answer is because God loved you first. That's the key to understand the principle operating behind the love of the Christian. It's the consequence of what God has done for you. So then, with that introduction, what are we going to extract as Paul's main point in this? So that we can apply is going to be the following. We have to be intentional and specific in showing our love. As we go through this verse, as we speak about this verse, start thinking to yourself, how can I show love to my husband, to my wife, to my kids, to my neighbor, to my friend, perhaps to this brother or sister that is not so lovable? How can I do that? So let us dig right in. The first header. Genuine Christian love is shown by just that, being genuine. What does the first part of that verse say? Let love be genuine. So let's talk about the definition of what we mean when we say love. The love that we're talking about here is not what our culture says. Well, you know, love is love. Well, who am I to judge? Well, by that standard, water is water. Are you going to go and drink out of the toilet? There's no such thing as a platitude in order to let somebody do whatever they want to do. No. God defines what love is. The term here is agape, a strong positive emotion of having a high regard and intimate affection towards someone. It expresses the kind of love that really shows that I'm going to appreciate, I'm going to show my sacrifice to this person. I'm going to have a high regard for them because I truly care. And I care for them because God has shown me love. So again, we start to see how this is very specific. Showing high regard for someone and strong positive emotion. Having the best interest at hand of the people that we show love to. This includes serving them, but this might also include calling them out. Telling them, my brother, my sister, I think you're out of line here. More on that shortly. Definition of the next vital term. It says that love should be genuine. That is, without hypocrisy, not pretending to be, but rather 
to actually be sincere. Has any one of us ever been told that we are loved, but later you realize we were told that only to be taken advantage of? Sadly, perhaps this happened to all of us at some point. How did that make you feel? Well, at least they loved me for a little bit. No, our immediate reaction is, you never loved me. I'm used. Obviously, that is not genuine love. It was an effort out of selfish interest. What is confused as love often is the desire for a quick gratification. More specifically, a lot of times it's lustful when it comes to a man and a woman. The young man that tells a young lady he loves her only because he wants to lay in bed with her is not love. That is lust. It seeks a self-interest and a self-fulfillment. It is not sacrificial. It does not show honor. It does not show respect. It is done with the purpose of fulfilling an outburst of lust. When that happens, it ultimately is a way of showing hatred for God because of sin and hatred for the person you are claiming to love. You are causing them to sin. So what are some other examples of love that is not genuine? And how can we have insight so that we correct paths and have our love be genuine? Next example comes to us as parents. For us as parents, if we let our children do whatever they want because we don't want to see them throw a fit, or perhaps when they're older because we would want to see them be sad, or because it's going to be inconvenient for us to invest time to love them and walk through them patiently with whatever's at hand. If we do that and we just fold, we're not loving them. That's not going to help them. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, speaking about disciplining a child, says this. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. In the context of parents disciplining their children, this is not talking about being harsh. This is talking about a child being disciplined by a loving parent for we are told that god himself disciplines his children because he loves them if you are in sin and god doesn't come and give you a kick in the pants and shakes you up god doesn't love you you don't belong to him because you're going on your merry way sinning away Letting someone do whatever they want with the idea that I love them no matter what is not a biblical way of thinking. If that were true, God would leave us to perdition and to damnation because he would just love us so much that he would just let us do what we want. That's not biblical. You can start to see that. God loves us as sinners. Yes, he rescued us as sinners. But he transforms our minds, our hearts, our attitudes. He makes us be born again. 
because he loves us. The next example, it is not loving to agree with the sinfulness of the world for the fear of backlash. What we're seeing today, for example, with the deviant sexual revolution, the social contagion that is transgenderism, for example, and the militant push from academia, from the elite, from the famous, from politicians, and the culture at large. It is not loving to say, well, to each their own. Who am I to judge? That's not loving. That's being a coward, especially if you're a Christian. No, we must show them that we love them by graciously and firmly telling people to repent by showing that that is not a biblical idea. As a matter of fact, it's an abomination to God. And also, it's not loving if we don't stand up to that because by and large, a primary target of that agenda is your children. If you haven't become aware of that, you better pay attention. So then love, genuine love, is not letting falsehood prevail. It is not letting sin go unchecked. It is not being fake or agreeable for the fear of confrontation. So then to show genuine love, we see a pattern in Scripture that stands up for the truth, that directs people to repentance and trust in Christ. When we do that, when we call people to repent, or when we see that we need to correct our way of thinking, it is not something that comes naturally to us. Our first response is to say, no, I'm not, you're wrong. That's our first response. But what does the scripture say? How can we show love? Let us go to the famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13. We'll take a look at four verses, 4 through 7. It says the following. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Obviously, much can be said about this template that we have there in 1 Corinthians 13 of ways in which love is expressed. But I will close this first section about love being genuine by pointing out that where true love is expressed, it necessarily needs to correspond to what is true. Not to an idea of what people or what the majority of raised hands think it's true. No, but to the truth. We cannot show love by lying or agreeing with those that believe lies. We cannot show love and be hypocrites at the same time. Love and truth belong together. The ultimate example of this is seen in Him who is the way, the truth, and the life. That is Jesus Christ Himself. True love derives from knowing Jesus. And that should lead us to show the love of Christ to others by standing firm in the truth claims of Christ. Secondly, we ought to show love by hating evil. 
It is not a play on words. It is just that. We ought to show love by hating evil. The second part of this verse says, abhor what is evil. Again, defining what these words mean, abhor to find repugnant, to hate, to despise. So then the question, is the Christian to hate? Yes, absolutely. I kind of like to say that, right? But yes, we are to hate. What are we to hate? The Christian is to hate that which God hates. God hates sin. God hates evil. And yes, God hates the unrepentant sinner. You better believe it. Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5, to mention only two verses. So then who gets to decide what good is and what evil is? Going back to the quote that I gave of J.C. Ryle, it is not a subjective matter as if we're going to show by a vote of hands if a position on a certain moral issue is right or wrong and we're going to decide by the show. No, that's not it. And essentially, if that's the way in which culture goes, which has gone that way by and large, we need to realize as Christians that that's wrong type of thinking and that what is evil and what is good is according to what God says. God is absolutely holy, that is, he is morally pure. So much so that he is completely set apart from us as creatures. We are sinners by nature and choice. And therefore our default condition out of the womb is to be separated from God because we're sinful. We are evil and sinful by nature, whereas God is good and holy and perfect by his own nature. So then this imperative to hate what is evil goes directly in conjunction with showing genuine love. What cannot show genuine love towards someone while at the same time being okay with or causing evil? Because we love, we must hate evil. So then, where do we look to for a perfect example of loving good and hating evil? Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 reads as follows. It's talking about the Son, which is Jesus. It says, but to the Son, he says, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, by the way, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then it says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. As we are called then to hate what is evil, let me make this clear. There's a very tempting attitude of self-righteousness. Like, Why can't everyone have the same position I have? Right? Let us be careful of that, my brothers and sisters. As Paul opened up in chapter 12, let us have the attitude of an accurate assessment of ourselves. So that we realize that we ourselves are in desperate need of God's grace in order to see evil and good, in order to discern what is right. This way, as we live out loving others and hating evil, we can do it with an attitude that says, like Paul did, by the grace shown to me, I'm able to point out that something is not right. I'm able 
to love my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my culture, my country by standing up for what is true, for what is right, according to what Christ has said. Not because I am more righteous than you, because I am not, and neither are you. By the grace shown to us. Another example to look for and to think of how to hate evil. Let us take a quick look at Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. It says the following. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. <clears throat> a false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. My brothers and sisters, as we look at such passages like these, it shouldn't take long to realize that if I examine myself with sincerity before I can point fingers to you, I can quickly find myself described in those words. Have I been one who acts overconfident? Have I been one who has lied, who at times has been unjust? Who has at point at certain point devised wicked plans, knowing that I'm in contradiction to God's word, to perhaps love my wife or to submit to my husband, perhaps devising a way that I can cause division? Man, some of those hit close to home, if I'm honest with myself. And the call here is to repent. It is part of our sanctification. This is talking to Christians, okay? It is part of us to realize that we're serving away and we need path correction. That is what the Word of God is here for. So that one can become the pattern then if we don't love genuinely, if we don't hate evil, and we keep our profession, our profession of faith showing up to gathering on Sundays, to group, to Bible study, men's group, but yet we don't change the attitude of our very inward being. What is a warning that we can look to? Well, Isaiah 1, verses 15 and 16. This is God admonishing his people. It says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I would not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. <coughs> God calls us out, my brothers and sisters. If we cannot have genuine love for others, we cannot have genuine love for God and vice versa. If we do not hate evil, we will be hindered in our worship to God, God says, you're just putting on a show. Get out of here. And go do what? He's given us an opportunity to repent. Go wash yourselves. Go clean yourselves. Repent. New Testament era, trust in Christ. Be forgiven. Be renewed in your mind, in your heart, in your character. So that your profession of faith matches your lifestyle. So then, 
Let us not be stuck in the spiritual conundrum where God does not accept our worship. Let us not be fake. Let us be genuine in our love. Let us hate what God hates. And this is not to start looking at, well, yeah, you know, so-and-so, they should stop doing, no. Well, what about you? Ways in which you should repent. Thirdly, we ought to show love by holding on to, by clinging to God and to what is good. The third part of this verse then says, hold fast to what is good. That term, hold fast, is to become in contact very closely, to stick or to hold together, to resist separation. This is the same word that is used in Matthew 19.5 when Jesus quotes from Genesis. And Jesus says that therefore a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The same word, cleave. is like two pieces of wood being glued together, clamped together. It's going to have a very firm attachment. Inseparable. In this way, we are told to hold on to what is good. And again, who defines what good is? God does. There's no such thing as looking around to see what everybody else is doing, what the culture approves of, in order for us to then go with the majority. No, that's not it. For frankly, we are told that the way, the path that leads to destruction is broad, and many go into it. Right? So clinging to what is good is what God defines as good. What happens when we define good in subjective terms? I think that, by and large, our nation has done that. If we look at history, it is not difficult to look at those who have rejected God's word and God altogether. How has it gone for those regimes or for those nations? Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, or even in our modern time, places like North Korea, in which the state acts as God. How's that going? It is anything but good. That's what happens when somebody grabs truth and says, truth is going to be what I tell you truth is. That is the definition of someone who has made themselves God. If you can grab a hold of truth and dictate it to people and they believe it, you will be a false God to them. So the definition of good and evil is not subjective. And it is not divorced from God's standard. Otherwise, death occurs both physically and spiritually. Let us take a look at the warning from Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. My brothers and sisters, if there was a timeline of history, we're right there. Okay? Those that are our leaders, 
in no uncertain terms, hold this position when it comes to moral matters. They call evil good, and they call good evil. We must look to God as the standard. The psalmist opens up the book of Psalms with the following exhortation. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There it is. What I've been getting to is this. The standard of what good and therefore what is good and evil, anything that opposes, knowing what to stay away from, knowing what to cling to, God tells us what that is. Specifically, it is God's law. The moral law, specifically. Going against what God commands is evil. It's the definition of evil. Sin. Now, some ways of looking to what the Bible says about attaching ourselves, clinging to, it all leads to Christ. The book of Hebrews gives us some insight. For instance, Hebrews 3, 6 and 14 tells us the following. I've summarized it in the notes. I'll read the verse to you, the verses to you. It says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold fast to our original confidence to the end. So this is a passage of enduring, of persevering, and looking to what? To our confidence, our confidence in Christ. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. Our conf confession to what? In Christ. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Again, holding fast to what? To our confession of our hope. Hope in who? In Christ. It all leads back to Christ. These passages tell us to hold on, hold fast, cling to our confidence, our confession, our hope in Christ. So then, what can we tell? What, we can, what can we say? What can we go away with here today? When it comes to showing genuine love, hating what is evil, and clinging to what is good. It should be an attitude of saying, not because I'm better or because I'm right, no. By the grace given to me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will do it. So then let us close with three reflections. First, if indeed we are called to love and we will love as Christians, genuinely, it is only because God had loved us first. Only. We cannot do this on our own. It is a response of love because of the love that God has shown each one of us. 
You cannot do it alone. Secondly, you are not neutral in this matter when you are called to love genuinely, to hate what evil is, and to cling to what is good. What do I mean that you're not neutral? Well, if you disobey those commandments to let your love be without hypocrisy and to hate evil, to hold on to what is good, that gap is going to be filled by doing the opposite. You're not going to be neutral, okay? It's hard enough being exhorted to do good. That's hard enough. Imagine if you're not even trying. That void will be filled by you loving what is evil, by you being hypocrite in the way that you show love, and by you not holding fast to what is good. We are called to not be neutral. There's no such thing. Thirdly, and lastly, we are called to obey this command of God, this imperative, as a response. In other words, we are to repent and to trust in Christ so that we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to realize that when this command comes to us, that we have fallen short. We have fallen short to obey this command, and we should repent. Now, as that passage in Isaiah said, God rebukes his people and said, you know, you're just putting on a show for me. You're not fooling me. I reject you. Go and cleanse yourselves. So that's the call for us to know that there is grace for us. If we know that we've fallen short, and we all have, there is an abundance of grace for you because you are God's child to love others, to serve others, to stick with your brothers and sisters, especially when it's difficult, to give a listening ear to your brother and sister who is suffering or in distress. And just a quick note about bearing with your brothers and sisters when they're suffering. When we do that, my brothers and sisters, be careful not to use that as a form of false humility, to pretend you're going to lend a crying shoulder or a listening ear only to tell your brother and sister well you're going through that I'm going through worse let me tell you about my life be careful not to do that if you need comfort there will be comfort for you but be sensitive to that as you love your brother and sister genuinely so then as we are called to obey this imperative as a response to love others Remember that we do that out of gratitude for what God has done. And we cannot do it out of guilt or out of legalism or out of obligation. And if perhaps that is the way that this call makes us feel, ask the Lord to take that away from you. So that you can love and serve genuinely out of gratitude and not out of shame and guilt. May the Lord grant us this, this very day, as we keep loving and serving each other in this local church that is God's church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you knowing that you are a faithful God, that you will finish the work that you've started in each one of your children, we look to you, Lord, for you are the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. We pray, Lord, that you make your Holy Spirit dwells in us, that it would give us conviction to act 
upon the call to be genuine in our love, to hate what is evil and to cling on to what is good, as we do so that we look to what Christ has done. For he has died on the cross. He has bled. He was murdered. He was buried for our transgressions. But he didn't remain there. He resurrected on the third day, defeating death and sin. So that whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. So whoever trusts in him will have eternal life. So whoever trusts in him will be spared from the wrath to come. Oh Lord, grant us that. And that it would be shown in this way that we love others with genuine love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.